Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by the Low Residency MFA program at the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert. What do Emily Rapp, Gina Frangello, Rob Roberge, Todd Goldberg, David L. Ulan, and Elizabeth Crane have in common? Other than being guests on this program, they are part of the faculty at the hottest MFA in the country, offering degrees in fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and screenwriting. The Low Residency MFA at UCR Palm Desert focuses on students becoming professional writers, actually selling their books and movies and TV shows, not just talking about it. More than just an MFA, the Low Residency MFA at UC Riverside is an entry point into a life in the arts. Plus, the two 10-day residencies are held at a resort and spa in Palm Desert, which isn't a bad way to attend graduate school. Think about it. For more information, please visit palmdesertmfa.ucr.edu or email Palm Desert MFA at ucr.edu. This is a low residency MFA program in Palm Desert, California. Go and study there and write. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, right. here we go again. This right. is it. This is other people. This is me exercising my First Amendment rights. This is rarely listened to in the halls of Congress. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Uh, let's be honest. I don't think this has ever been listened to in the halls of Congress. I can't imagine that happening. Maybe it has. Uh, it's, it's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a nice day. My guest today is Elizabeth Brunig, and uh, she is a young staff writer for The New Republic. Today, I figured we would do an election show. We would do a political show. Uh, we would also, uh, in, the, in the same breath, do a religion show because Elizabeth, that's her beat. She writes about politics and religion, and uh, you know, I have a bit of a history with her. She first came to my attention uh, editorially at the Nervous Breakdown years ago, my online culture magazine, my literary community. She uh, submitted an essay, and this was back before she was Elizabeth Brunig. She was not married at that time. She was Elizabeth Stoker, and I remember getting her uh, essay over the transom. I read it. I was blown away. I was able to infer her age when I read the uh, essay and uh, was doubly blown away by how good she was for somebody so young. And I then uh, wound up finding her work uh, once again, after she took a staff writing job with the New Republic last year, 
Her beat, once again, is politics and religion, two things that are of great fascination to me. She's right in my wheelhouse, and she's just very smart when it comes to this stuff, and really smart in general. I don't always agree with her, but of course I don't want that. I want to be challenged, and she definitely challenges me uh, with her writing. So uh, with that in mind, and with the uh, 2016 Iowa caucuses imminent, I I thought it would be a good idea to have uh, an explicitly political writer on the show, somebody who really engages politics uh, professionally. And then, uh, you know, I think it even, I think it sweetens the pot to have somebody who not only writes about politics, but also religion, because I think those two things in American culture are so often uh, intertwined, and not only in American culture, but elsewhere in the world uh, to varying degrees. So uh, just really excited to have her here. As for uh, the election, I thought I would say a few words about it as it's coming up. It's here finally, even though we've been doing this, I feel like for I don't know how long, you know, our election cycles have, uh, you know, they extend themselves. It seems like every time we go through one, it just, it's a little bit longer and, uh, you know, more grueling, but I am persuaded by Bill Maher's logic. Uh, I don't know if you guys watch real time, but he was talking about election cycles in America and how they're really long and how in the past he used to think that they were too long and it was ridiculous how long they were. But then, uh, he's now of the belief that, you know, we actually need a long time because our electorate is really stupid. People need time to like process and figure out that, you know, Donald Trump is a a grotesque buffoon, but that doesn't seem to be happening quite yet. (laughs) We need more time. You know, if you had a really compressed election cycle, like they have in say England, where what everything unfolds in six weeks or whatever it is, uh, you know, who knows who we, you know, who we would elect. Crazy things could happen. Crazy things could happen anyway, but I feel like our electorate, for whatever, you know, for whatever reason in America needs more time. That seems, at the moment anyway, persuasive to me. So uh, heading into the election, what, what, what do I think? I think that what we're seeing on the, on the GOP side uh, represents hopefully some kind of nadir, some sort of uh, political nadir in American life. It can't get weirder than this. I feel like Donald, uh, Donald Trump is just uh, frightening. He's also at times uh, very funny in the dark and uh kind of gruesome way he's hard not to look at you know that's the whole thing with him he's very good at mastering the media he's a fascin he's a fascinating character let's put it that way um i think that ted cruz is frightening i just think that there's so much dysfunction ideologically uh i think that there's so much dysfunction racially on the republican side of the line i think there's a lot of dysfunction when it comes to gender on the republican side of the line that's not to say that there these things don't exist as well uh, in, uh, left-wing politics or in Democrat politics, but I don't like false equivalencies. I don't like the false equivalencies that I also, you know, I so often hear from people in the media and elsewhere talking about how, oh, you know, they're all the same or when, you know, Democrats and Republicans are presented as being equally dysfunctional. That's just not true in my opinion. I think it's objectively not true. I think it's obviously not true when you look at things, if you follow this stuff at all. It's very lazy thinking in my estimation. So uh, I think that, yeah, I think the GOP is just a real shit show right now and a frightening one. And I think that, uh, you know, the Democrats have uh, Hillary and they have Bernie and to a lesser extent, Martin O'Malley. And I think that that's a formidable, uh, especially Bernie and Hillary. It's formidable and it's a good debate. If you watch the Republican debates, yeah, sometimes they debate things in a way that seems substantive and interesting. Certain candidates like John Kasich uh, and, you know, Jeb and 
who else am I thinking of? I guess Rubio. I mean, like some of these guys want to debate stuff, maybe have an interest in policy. Kasich in particular seems to like really engage. He seems like he, to me, he seems like the sane Republican, but of course that probably means he won't win almost certainly. And then on uh, the Democratic side, you have Hillary and uh, Bernie, and those, you know, they are really uh, representative of the two wings of uh, that party. And they're good at uh, representing the interests of those wings. And so it's been nice to see uh, that happen. It's it's been especially nice to see Bernie get a chance to talk about progressive left-wing politics in a way that we haven't really seen uh, on such a big stage and with such support in recent memory. I think it's healthy. I don't know what's going to happen. You know? And, uh... You know, I know it's exhausting. Politics can be so exhausting. I feel like this happens, especially when it comes to social media. You, you know, you see it happen every time there's an election. Everybody gets ginned up. Everybody just wears themselves out. And then once the election happens, it just goes quiet again. <laughs> But we're about, you know, we're ramping up. We've been ramping up for the past year, and now we're actually in 2016. So just you can expect it to be uh, on your computer screen constantly. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, yeah, there can be, there can be, there's such a thing as overkill. But I think it's a vital, it's a vital thing to talk about. It's a good thing to think about. It's a sign of health for a democracy when people are engaged and talking and arguing, when people are changing their minds getting emotional, coming down from off the ledge, going back up onto the ledge, (laughs) grandstanding, soapboxing, bitching, all of it. That's democracy. An idea that I find interesting and persuasive is this notion that uh, you can't have the right without the left, that duality, kind of a simple idea, but like worth remembering in a political season uh, where, you know, fevers are spiking can be, you know, it can be appealing uh, to think that, uh, you know, the annihilation of one's political opposition is possible. But it's not. You can't have the left without the right. You can't have the right without the left. The two need each other. And yes, there's going to be a contest of ideas. And yes, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And hopefully, and I, t- I tend to think, you know, holistically in a big picture way, the good ideas do eventually hopefully win out. I got to believe that as an optimist. I got to be optimistic. I have kids. I have no choice. I'm kind of an idealist at heart in the way that I, I think about uh, the future. What's possible. I also like to think that I'm uh, clear-eyed and, and pragmatic about where things are when it comes to just like the nuts and bolts of congressional representation and the mood of the country, poll numbers on certain issues. I mean, you know, yes, there's such a thing as transcending all of that and, and having a politician come along who can, you know, rouse the people and so on. But most of the time, it's a slow process. It's, in, it's an incremental process. It's, it's an imperfect process. And I, I like to think I'm okay with that, despite my idealistic leanings. So 
anyway, I don't know what's going to happen. It seems like Donald Trump could win the nomination for the GOP, which was unthinkable four or five months ago and is horrifying, but seems like it could happen. And what's crazy is that that's not the most horrifying scenario. Like, I, I got to say, I'm, I would be more horrified to see Ted Cruz win the nomination. He frightens me more. There's something darker about him, something more uh, sinister when I look at him. In the same way that when I looked at, like, uh, Cheney, or when I continue to look at Cheney, there's something, because you know, he's very smart, he's a very cunning individual, he's a good orator, he's a good debater, he's ruthless. And if you read up on him, uh, like, there's nobody in Ted Cruz's life, personally or professionally, at any stage of his life, he left, he just leaves a trail of enemies in his wake. People can't stand him. <laughs> his roommate at college. I mean, can you imagine your roommate from the dorms at college just shit-talking you as bad uh, as Ted Cruz's roommate has shit-talked him on Twitter and whatnot? Have you guys been seeing this? That's unusual. So, yeah, I mean, it, Trump is not the worst option, and that's incredible to say. because he's a really bad option. That's fucked up. I can't even believe it's real. It seems like a crazy cartoon over there, but it looks like he might win. And I guess if he doesn't win, if he and Ted Cruz beat each other, uh, you know, they beat each other up to the point where a third candidate emerges or when like Jeb and Kasich and uh, whoever else eventually you know, decide to throw in the towel and then like, you know, their supporters coalesce around the the last standing establishment figure. I could potentially see it playing out like that. I think that's at least a possibility, but man, that just doesn't seem to be the mood right now of the base uh, on the Republican side of the line. They seem angry and they seem frankly discombobulated. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Donald Trump's not a Republican. Seems so obvious. He doesn't give a shit. He just wants power. He just wants to win. He just wants to be on TV. He just wants to be constantly on TV. And then on the Democratic side, you know, the Democrat side, what was it? What is it? Democratic or Democrat? I don't know. Uh, Hillary versus Bernie. It's a really, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really clear choice. It's a really clear dynamic. It's, it's a head heart dynamic. You know, the intellectually, I look at it and I'm like, Hillary is the right choice. She's got the deepest experience. She knows how Washington works. She's been through these battles. She's got great name recognition, people looking for a steady hand or somebody they think they can trust, despite the fact that a lot of people, you know, there's all this like Hillary's dishonest and she's got her, you know, she's got her uh, dirty laundry for sure. But broadly speaking, you know, people, when it comes time to pick a president, I think would look at Hillary and say, oh, she was the first lady. Oh, she was a senator. Oh, she was the secretary of state. Like that's the kind of resume that tends to comfort people when they go into the uh, booth. And she's, you know, I think she's, she's presenting uh, policy ideas that uh, fall within the framework of what is achievable in this climate which maybe isn't as sexy or exciting as some of the things that Bernie's saying. Bernie, uh, you know, he speaks to my heart. And it's a thrill to hear somebody stand up and talk about single-payer health care and talk about, the, you know, the, the crime. It really is a crime, I think, to be saddling 
young people who are trying to get a college education with all this debt. That's stupid. And it's just morally wrong. I, I had Ben Fountain on this program uh, a long time ago. It was a year or two, probably two years ago, uh, when Billy Lynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk. I think that's the title. Billy Lynn's, Billy Lynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk came out. And I was talking to uh, Ben Fountain. He said something I'll never forget. Uh, he said that uh, I believe his father uh, is or was a uh, administrator, a college administrator. And he said when it came to the issue of student loan debt, that you know the argument for student loan debt is that students are making an investment in themselves and uh, in the, and in their future when they take on that that debt and they go to get their college education and that has it backwards is what ben said you know we shouldn't be asking young people to take out whatever it is 60,000 100,000 $150,000 in student loan debt to make an investment in themselves. We should be making an investment in them. And it would be good for the economy. It's a win-win. People who walk out of uh, their college with their diploma and $100,000 in debt are not going to be able to buy a home. They're not going to be able to participate in the economy in a way that's going to keep it uh, vibrant. You don't want a bunch of people who are you know, carrying around a bunch of debt burden. Plus, it just stifles innovation. It stifles dreaming. People do things out of necessity rather than doing things out of excitement or interest or passion. It seems so obvious. So, you know, that's just one example. And then healthcare. You know, I just got a notice from Anthem this week saying my healthcare went up again 12%. It's gone up more than 100% over the past three years. I fall into that little weird window economically where the ACA doesn't do much for me and to a degree it's fine I mean you know we can afford to pay to a degree that other people can't but it gets old so I don't know Bernie uh, speaks to my heart Hillary speaks to my head if I had to pick the candidate to run against the GOP nominee it would be really hard for me it's a torturous decision for me I don't even think I've made it yet, to be honest with you. I go back and forth. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, I've talked enough. This is maybe the longest monologue, uh, in recent memory. 
and I think it's better now if we just get to Elizabeth Bruin and, and when, you know, she can help us sort this out. So uh, great to have her here on this program. I think you guys are going to really enjoy her. If you haven't read her work, you should check it out. This is Elizabeth Brunig of the New Republic. Okay, so you did not have like a you were not a child who was at odds with her Christian upbringing. Like you are like none of the work that you do today is a reaction against what you were fed uh, or what you were exposed to as a child. No, not at all. I mean, that's definitely not uncommon along, among, you know, religion journalists, people who write about religion or get focused on religion. A lot of people, I think the difference between me and people who end up feeling sort of alienated by the religion that they grew up with was a lot of parents will use the religion to kind of enforce discipline on the children. Um, so the chain of authority is sort of God, the parent, and the child uh, in that order. And you can kind of, you can certainly derive that from the Bible. I don't think that's wrong, but my parents, for whatever reason, didn't do it that way, probably because they were, you know, sort of hyper Protestant. So instead they just kind of framed the power structure as God arrow down each individual person. So I never thought of God as a sort of enabler of my parents power over me. I, uh, I always just thought I had a unique personal private relationship with God and they had theirs. Okay, and so uh, and did you and you and like I've I've read where you you said that you had like kind of a spiritual awakening in college, like you weren't super into it until you got to college. Like, was there something specific that happened? Well, yeah, I got into Catholicism. Um, I you know part of the problem with having a private and personal um, relationship with God is that um, you know it can it can get a little bit um, dusty and a little bit comfortable when it's just you. And, and another entity that doesn't necessarily uh, speak to you or talk to you or interact with you every day. So it can get a little bit dull and uh, complacent. When I started reading Augustine in college, that's when I got really into Catholicism and I, I kind of had a renewed interest in Christianity in a way I hadn't before. Why? What was it about Augustine? I liked his arguments. Um, I like that Augustine didn't see religion as something private. Um, you know, and of course that view didn't come along until many centuries after Augustine, but he, he didn't see a relationship with God as something individual, personal, private that could become sort of boring and uh, bloodless over time. He saw God's dominion, not only extending to absolutely everything in the universe, but the idea was that God permeates all things. So every relationship you have with everything, um, is, is in some sense, a relationship with God. Yeah, yeah, okay, so that sort of jives with how I conceive of it, because when you say God, I mean, this is a very, uh, you know, it's almost been, it's almost a meaningless term or a term that can be, that can feel like confusing, because everybody's got a different take on it, and people misuse it, and people say it doesn't exist, but like, what what is God to you? Well, you know, God is the, uh, he's a triune God. I can give you a lot of aspects of God, um, I think that to me, God is not a being among beings. God is actually the being of beings. I agree. So yeah. it's difficult. It's yeah, so it's difficult to say that God is you know one specific person among many other people because actually, um, God it, 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 he he permeates all of existence, um, and in fact is existence itself. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm down with that. Like I just because my attitude is like I have no idea. Um, yeah, it's hard to talk about. Right? Well, it's too big. It's too big. So it's like it, to me, it's like it's he's it, God is either nothing or everything. And I think 
the optimist in me is like, it's everything, just everything. It's just whatever the hell this is, like, that's that's God. This is too magnificent. I don't know how to describe it. So let's, just, you know, if you want to use that word, then I can use it to, to just describe everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So you read Augustine. You start mm-hmm. to get into Catholicism. I'm really not well-schooled on the differences between... Uh, you know, Protestant or uh, Methodist and Catholic. Like, what was it about Catholicism that differs from the Methodist uh, church of your upbringing that spoke to you? What got me interested in Augustine was it, um, well, so the context is I was at Brandeis, which is a, a Jewish school in a lot of ways. You don't have to be Jewish to go there, and you don't have to take any Jewish-related classes, but I did. I minored in Jewish studies. So I was in this course where I was reading the Bible with a rabbi, and, you know, he would refer to the sort of secondary texts of the Torah, the, the Midrash and the Talmud, and we don't necessarily have anything like that, not in the Protestant tradition. But it made sense to kind of accumulate the wisdom of the ages over time when it came to interpreting the Bible. And I could see that that made a lot of sense. And it certainly made the interpretations that I was reading in the Jewish books that we were given a lot more enlightening, I mean, a lot more revealing. I started seeing more things in the Bible than I had ever seen before. And I realized that, well, you could argue about whether or not that makes a lot of sense. Is it right to bring in secondary texts? Is there something special or unique about the Bible that gives it extraordinary authority to the degree that it sort of dwarfs the importance of any other form of reason that you could in- interpret it with? Uh, and I started reading some Catholic takes because I knew they had a different way of thinking about it. And I started reading Augustine and his references to you know, tradition to reason to uh, secular and pagan scholars. And he would employ all of these things to help understand what was going on with biblical texts. And that really spoke to me. Yeah. But see, that's not what I mean in my little like rookie understanding of Catholicism. That's not like secular reason. Like those aren't words that I would typically associate with it, but it's there in Augustine. Oh yeah. I mean, they, you know, certainly Aquinas had Aristotle and Augustine had Plato and um, they, you know, there were a lot of shades in, in between those two and they, they definitely bring in a lot of, you know, quote unquote secular thinkers. Of course, for the Catholic theologian, if a secular thinker stumbles upon truth, they've discovered something of God. So there is no secularity about the truth. It's all holy. Which makes sense. And, uh, I, I guess I'm wondering now if you've ever had a time in your life where you felt godless or entertained atheism or anything like that. No, I've, I've always been lucky to be able to kind of sense the presence of God. Um, I've certainly felt like, uh, you know, maybe God was tired of me or had kind of <laughs> turned away from me. Um, maybe I was bothering him too much. Yeah. I, I've felt maybe, that way. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> I, I, I've worried that I've been praying too much or being kind of tedious with God, and you know. Yeah. So what, what about uh, like, what about like the mythology versus the teachings? Like, you know, because I find that the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of a lot of different religions, but Catholicism, um, you know, being the one I was raised in, like I can look at the teachings and be very persuaded. I can find a lot of deep meaning in them and inspiration in them. But when it comes to like the mythology, it starts to lose me. And when it comes to the politics of the church and the behavior of the hierarchy and you know, a lot of the stuff, the treatment of women, uh, for example, you know, that's where I can start to lose the thread. Like, how do you balance all that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I see the mythology. You mean the miracles and things like that? Yeah, Jonah in the belly of the whale, Noah's the yeah. ark. I mean, like, to me, this is like, uh, it seems very much like um, uh, fiction, you know, but like with a, with a parables, you know, they're, they're stories with meaning, but not necessarily with historical accuracy. Uh, not, yeah. not meant to be interpreted literally, but often that's the way that, you know, that's the way that they're presented or that's the way that they're interpreted. Yeah, Augustine thought that there was no reason that biblical passages couldn't have multiple meanings, that some of them would be historically accurate, some less so, but they all were full of meaning. So the fact that maybe something didn't occur in history, although I have not tried to make those kinds of determinations myself because I'm not really interested in it, um, doesn't mean that it has no meaning. So I just kind of look at the whole thing as teaching, even the parts that read like narrative history, because um, it was all compiled to try to say something, even if it's not immediately clear, um, maybe what that was. Yeah, I think that's why I'm such a fan of you, because I, I feel like you put such a good brain to this stuff where a lot of times in public discourse, um, the dialogue around it isn't nearly so historically rooted or scholarly, to, to put it politely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can happen. I mean, definitely... Um... I'm very interested in in the way the Bible has been treated uh, over the centuries. Um, in terms of you know balancing the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the treatment of women, etc., I don't. It's hard for me to explain why that's never bothered me. Um, I know I talked earlier about sort of power, um, and just sort of part of my personality is I don't mind authority at all. I don't mind being under authority. I I mind being under illegitimate authority. I don't like it when people who don't have any reason or cause or claim to tell me what to do, tell me what to do. But if someone has a legitimate cause or claim, you know, they're an, an officer of the law or uh, something like that, and they try to tell me what to do, and I don't, I don't actually have a problem with that. So I've never felt, you know, sort of put upon or abused by the hierarchy. What about, um, but you don't, it doesn't bother you that women can't be priests? No, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't. And what about the child abuse scandal? I mean, obviously that bothers everybody. Right? Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a case of yeah, the most sort of grievous and wanton uh, form of abuse of power. That that's completely disgusting and repugnant. And I'm glad that Pope Francis has been as vocal as he has been about that. But he hasn't pleased everybody. And like, it's just I think about this in my own family. It's like, how can I mean most organizations? If you found out there was like a rampant systemic child rape thing happening you'd be like i'm out <laughs> and yet I, my family like no one has renounced because of that everyone's still catholic uh am i overreacting i mean i i was gone when i was like in high school i, I haven't gone to church since i was mm -hmm. in high school but it's like like to me it's like how can how can people stay this thing is corrupt like I, you know isn't it time to find something new when this is happening but there there are deep reasons for people staying it's part of their identity it's it's the community that they're um you know, invested in and have been a part of for years. I mean, it's, a, it's got really deep roots and, and people feel really deeply attached, obviously to stick with it through something like that. Do you watch uh, game of Thrones? Yeah, I do. I still don't know what's happening in game of Thrones. I've watched, I have no idea. Yeah. I've watched, <laughs> I've watched every episode. I have no fucking clue what's going on in game. Of there Thrones. was a really good, there was a really good point in, uh, in the, I think fourth season. I remember it's when Oberyn Martell was around. Um, it was a really fun character and, uh, he was really upset about, um, the, you know, murder and rape of his sister and her children. And he was remarking to Cersei at one point that in his country, 
they don't hurt little girls. And Cersei said, everywhere in the world, they hurt little girls. Uh, and I thought that was one of the most remarkable, you know, relevant to the modern world statements made in Game of Thrones. Um, and that's sort of how I came to terms with joining the Catholic Church after the sex scandal. I knew about it, uh, well, of course, you know, when I came into the church and I talked to the priest who I was working with about it. And I asked for an explanation. How did this happen? He was pretty forthright, I felt. Um, but it occurred to me that everywhere in the world, people abuse children. They abuse women. They abuse power. It happens inside the church because the church is seamless with the world. And I realized I can't escape it. But in the church, it is on you know many orders of magnitude worse than when it happens in the army or schools because the church has a claim to moral credibility. And what the church damaged in that scandal was not only countless lives, but its own claim to moral authority. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to recover from that for a really long time. I was and that's, say. that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. But it's also, I mean, I guess like the hopeful note to strike is that, you know, if it leads to real change and more transparency and more humility or, you know, maybe it's maybe it's something that in the long run can make uh, a really positive impact on the church um, or at least lead to positive change, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I hope so. I mean, I, I certainly hope that every single precaution and reform is undertaken to prevent that from ever happening again. Um, what about like angels and stuff like that? Do you believe in that? Yeah, I find angels really interesting. I, I'm really fascinated by how they're portrayed in the media. I believe they must exist. I'm not really sure what they are or what their attitudes are to humans. There's not really that much said about them um, in the canonical texts. And they pop up a little bit more in the Apocrypha. But you really never get a clear read on what they are, what their deal is. I, I find them really interesting. I find them really interesting. Yeah. Um, they're not super central to my faith or anything. Um, but I'm definitely fascinated. It's not like that. Like, like you're not like Tori Amos. Like you're not. Uh, I wish. I no. like, <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> no. no, not sitting around with my house full of angel figurines. But uh, but they're interesting. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and then politics, because yeah. you know you. I think those are the the two principal concerns of your professional life: Christianity and politics. And, uh, I, you know, I can see the direct line from one to the other, but like, how did you get interested in politics? Was it a dual thing? Uh, was it always there? Was it something that your, um, conversion to Catholicism led you to, or how did it happen? Augustine wrote a lot about politics. Um, I had sort of grown up with the separation of church and state lines, sort of keeping me, um, interested in both of those things. I, I debated in high school. We had a lot of, you know, sort of current events type topics. I found them really really um, occupying. I thought about them a lot. But with Augustine, I started to see, you know, a form of Christianity that actually interpreted a political um, line out of the Bible um, and, and out of, you know, church tradition and at large. And I, I started to find the kind of combination really interesting in ways that I hadn't before. But I, I was interested in them separately before I became interested in them together, and especially politics as it pertains to poverty. Were you always uh, left of center politically? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, I definitely have calmed down a little bit, as a matter of fact. What about, uh, were your parents uh, left wing? No, they're, I'd say they're like centrist, like moderate Republicans. Okay. And then, uh, yeah. but what was it? Like, what was it for you? Was there a, a, a single issue or, like, I'm always curious to know how people arrive at their political identities. It doesn't sound like you were like reacting against your family or anything. Um, 
like some people, you know, it's like dad's a hardcore right winger. So I'm going to be like a, <laughs> a communist or something, you know? No, no, that's really, that's not it at all. My parents are very sort of solid, reliable, good, Protestant, hardworking, middle of the road, politically type people. So, I mean, there's really no way that I could have reacted against them that would have been, that you know, that wouldn't have been like humiliating for me. Right. Um, because for one, they wouldn't have been mad; they just would have been disappointed. <laughs> so, like, I, I guess I, I kind of rebelled by, well, I dated my husband. Um, we were in high school together. Um, Matt, you know, uh, one might say was from the wrong side of the tracks, um, and a little bit more, you know, pugnacious than I am in terms of politics. So that was one way that I rebelled. But then I kind what of do, what, do you the- mean, what do you mean he was from the wrong side of the tracks? He's just from like the other side of town where like the the rough kids lived or something. Yeah, Matt, he had a very, very rough upbringing. Matt was pretty pretty frequently homeless. Um, and he came from an elementary school that was not well off. Um, and, you know, that was kind of understood to be true about him in our in our debate circle. That, you know, Matt didn't have a lot. And my parents were, you know, not certainly uh, rich, but definitely in the, in the middle class. What did, what did they do? My dad is in finance, and my mom is a government contractor. Okay, so you have some civic. There's something civic happening in your uh, family, like occupation. Yeah, and, yeah. And, my and... my grandpa was an Air Force mechanic. He'd been through the Dust Bowl, so that's my best guess at where I got into the kind of populist left stuff. <laughs> and then maybe dating Matt, like knowing somebody who came from uh, really rough circumstances, like gave you maybe a sensitivity to. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting obviously, but you know, I'm always fascinated like where it comes from. Like, did that oh, have, yeah. was that a part of it? Was that a part of it? Like being like, like really intimately knowing somebody who, uh, didn't have much and it wasn't their fault, you know, and like trying to like reconcile that with people who have a lot and how the system works. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very, I mean, he's definitely the more magnetic figure, um, between the two of us and he, you know, he was really bullshy in high school. I mean, he was really, really like, yeah, red in tooth and claw. Um, and he's still, you know, he's, he's now he identifies as a democratic socialist. But back then, I mean, Matt was ready to um, have some blood in the gutters. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was a, you know, that's definitely the time to start thinking about those kinds of things if you want a long trajectory of, of gaining um, you know, perspective and nuance in your politics. And, and certainly there are adult Bolshevik types, so it doesn't mean it goes away with age. But, um, yeah, I, I, that fascinated me. I guess I had never looked at poverty as particularly political before I got to know Matt. Our church did outreach. I had done that. I had volunteered. Um, I had done all kinds of things around um, poverty and homelessness, and I continued doing that in college. But I always thought of it as kind of a matter of private charity, and it was frustrating because it seems so intractable. Um, and there, you know, certainly is some intractable poverty out there, but there's a lot of poverty that's not intractable. Yeah. And, uh, and sort of getting to know Matt uh, definitely made me more amenable to that kind of reasoning. And were you, were you a really good student? You had to have been a really good student. It's weird. Uh, so my first two years of high school, I actually failed a grade. I uh, was diagnosed with epilepsy. So I had kind of a rough couple of years, but then my last two years were fine. Yeah, and I got a four zero in college and all that stuff. Okay, because you seem really intelligent. Like, uh, like Thank you're, you. you're twenty five years old. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. It's totally put on. Um, complete illusion. 
I promise you. But are you, are you extremely? I, are you an extremely hard worker? Are you like you don't you don't drink? You don't do drugs? You're always like you're 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 reading books and at the library. No. No, that's true. I definitely. Um, I'm not very. Ref- uh, I'm just sort of too weird to party. You know, like I talk to someone at a party for like 15 minutes, and I'm really <laughs> tired. And, like have to take a break, and like it's um it's not a thing that is anybody else's fault. It's just like I. I'm not very good at that, so I've always like had kind of small friend groups. So, um, I've never, yeah, I don't drink. I've never done any kind of anything like that. So, I mean, in college, there really wasn't much to do except work. But at the same time, I've I've always had friends who are very yeah. nice and supportive. <laughs> and then how and how did the epilepsy affect you? Uh, you know, you said you failed a grade, so academically, obviously, it had an impact. But I mean, how what was, what was the actual day to day of that? It was really hard. Um, the first seizure that I ever had, I had in a junior high cafeteria. Um, I was wearing a skirt, and it was just a very bad scene. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Welcome to the Dollhouse. Yeah, I have. I, I very much identify with Dawn there. Um, oh, God. <laughs> it's sort of like a public uh, humiliation that everybody remembered uh, well into high school. Um, and then I had more seizures after that, and my family didn't know what was going on, and you know, we had to go to pediatric neurologists, specialists in epilepsy, and eventually I got diagnosed, and then it was a lot of taking different medicines to see what worked. And with epilepsy, because they can't sort of cut into your brain and look at what's going on, it's a lot of throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks with medicine. Um, so I've been on a lot of different medications in my lifetime, and that was not great. Um, that was not good. <laughs> but now you're you're on stable footing with it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been under control for a long time. The last seizure I had, I think I was in college. Well, that's good. I used to, I went to school with a kid, I remember in junior high, who had epilepsy, and it was really horrible. Yeah, mine's not. Uh, there are definitely, definitely many, many worse syndromes than the one that I have. Did you have, uh, like, grand mal seizures? Or? I did, yeah. You I know, do. Those are pretty hard. I mean, like, as somebody who's watched a person have one of those, it's just like, you, like especially as a kid, I was just like, what in the world is happening? And uh, And, of course, kids are cruel, too, so, you know. After the fact, it was always like weird, but you just felt for the kid who was who was going through it. Yeah, kids. Yeah, people were pretty mean about it. I mean, junior high is not the not the right time to stand out in any fashion. Not, it's not a good time to be not, different. It's not a good time to start having seizures. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely pick either elementary school or maybe college, but I would skip the adolescence if I had to time the onset of seizures. So you get to you go to why did you go to Brandeis? I really liked it. It was a weird situation. My parents had both gone to school in Texas, um, and so their kind of college world was pretty small, and um, they recommended that I kind of look outside the state and see if I saw anywhere that I liked, and um, so I did, and I asked people kind of that I knew, adults that I knew, where they'd gone to college, and my dad's boss had gone to Brandeis, which I thought was very impressive. You know, she was a lady. She was you know, doing very well for herself in life. And, and she had enjoyed Brandeis. And so I checked it out and I really liked it. I mean, it was good for me in a lot of ways. There are no sororities or fraternities. So I thought the pressure to be uh, cool would be a little lower. And, what, uh, and was it? Yeah, yeah. There's zero pressure to be cool at Brandeis. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's pressure uh, to be uncool. Yeah, exactly. It's totally in the opposite direction. So, um, it, it was very, very good for me in that way. It was quiet. It was out of the way. It's about nine miles outside of Boston. It kind of sat back in the trees. And, you know, if you just kind of like a low impact, uh, take it easy, read and small classes, stuff like that, then it was, it was really good. And did you know what you wanted to do when you got there? No, not at all. 
Not at all. I think I, I went in hoping for some kind of professional degree to, to be a lawyer or something like that. But then I got really, really into religion. And and what was it? Like, so it was a class you took? It was a book you read Augustine just independently and that's what sparked it? Yeah, well, the, the class that I took that kind of got me into thinking about Augustine and uh, sort of interpreting religious texts was, um, I think it was a class called Understanding Evil and Human Destiny, which I took as a first semester freshman. <laughs> Nice way to break. Nice way to break the ice. Yeah. And it had. A, it was taught by a rabbi, and we read Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Iphigenia, the Iliad, um, sort of a Western canon type class, as it turned out. I still don't understand evil and human destiny, um, but it was really, really fascinating to me, and I was sort of gripped by it in a way that I wasn't by any of the other material I was working on. So I just kind of stayed in that arena and tried to make a career out of it. What did you major in? I double majored in English and sociology. Okay. There's no religion in that. I mean, you know, there's nothing explicitly religious in terms of your major. No, it was weird. We didn't have a religious studies department. We did have a Near Eastern and Judaic studies department, and I did minor in Near Eastern and Judaic studies. Um, but in all my English stuff, I focused on religion. I focused, I read a lot of William Blake. Um, I found that really interesting. And then in the sociology stuff, I focused on the sociology of religion. Um, so there were there's a lot of flexibility inside of those majors that allowed me to, to have a kind of religion. What's the sociology of religion? Explain that. Sociology of religion tries to understand, uh, in most cases, why people um, are a part of the religions they're a part of. What does it mean to be a part of, of a religion? Is it attendance, observance, belief? Uh, and then uh, how people follow along those lines, and what accounts for trends in the in those in those areas, changes in religious demography, um, or at least that's what I focused on. There are people in sociology of religion who look at how people relate to religious spaces, religious professions, chaplaincies, chapels, uh, churches, synagogues. They look at how religion functions in the community, how churches, synagogues, mosques support communities or impact them. So it's a pretty big field. Well, no, it's funny, too, to think I'm thinking about the South because my parents are from uh, the South and uh, just, you know, you coming from there, you'll understand like just how, um, uh, like, what is it, how deeply rooted the church is, uh, all kinds of different churches, but, you know, Christian denominations and how deeply rooted it is in just the, the culture uh, and, and how much of a, uh, to me, whenever I go down there, it just seems like a different world and it seems like the church performs a, a social function to a degree that uh, it doesn't in other parts of the country, to say the least. I'm in Los Angeles, so. Um, but, you know, it, it feels like that everyone goes. You know, when everyone goes, uh, that changes the dynamic considerably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely been my experience in Texas is everyone has their sort of church community um, and their church groups, and that kind of accounts for a lot of your free time. Um, which was not my experience when I got to New England and then lived in the UK for a while. It's certainly not the, not the norm there. Yeah, well, you, um, you went over to Cambridge. Is that right, or Oxford, or what? Is this? Cambridge, yeah. Cambridge, and that's the and you got the same scholarship that like Tom Friedman got, right? <laughs> that's right. Yes, uh, Brandeis. Um, we hadn't had a Marshall Scholar since Tom Friedman, and then I got it. That's pretty. That's pretty uh, heady company. Yeah, it's a it's a one destiny that a person could have. <laughs> 
um, I would take the New York Times column. I mean, that's a it's a pretty sweet gig. I feel like you're on your way. I really do. <laughs> Thank I've you. Told, I've, I, I should go on the air. I want to go on the record saying that I've I've written you telling you that you're going to win all the awards. I, I predict Pulitzer Prizes. I think you're going to be on the Sunday shows. I think you have a very bright future. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I'm definitely excited about having a baby. The immediate future is pretty bright. Uh, Yeah, that's a blessing. I mean, you know, I I don't use that word a lot, but it really is. I mean, kids kids are are the greatest, in my opinion. I mean, it's the best thing I've ever done. So you're in for a good ride. It's a lot of work. And you won't sleep and you'll be completely miserable, but it's the best. <laughs> it's exciting. It is. It's really exciting. I think the most exciting moment early in my pregnancy was when uh, the doctor let me hear the heartbeat for the first time. And I realized it's sort of like on a daily basis. Now I have two heartbeats at different rates. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, the, yeah. Your, and your kid is Absolutely. way, way outpacing you. Like I think yeah. their hearts, their hearts beat like, what is it? Like hundreds of beats a minute when they're really young. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing. It's a, uh, it's, it's like a hummingbird. Yeah. Okay, so and you're a pro-life lefty. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that's a, that that again distinguishes you among the left. It also, um, I guess, puts you into the mainstream uh, of Catholicism. I mean, it, did Catholic doctrine have a big impact on your decision there? Were you always pro-life, uh, or did you switch? I did switch. Um, I did switch. Catholic doctrine had a huge impact both on me being pro-life in terms of abortion and being against the death penalty. Um, sort of being from Texas and being kind of, you know, middle of the road politically for at least my childhood, my parents were not profoundly anti-abortion. They didn't really talk about it. It's not a big thing on their to-do list. For them, it was a Supreme Court decision and it was the law of the land. Um, They didn't have to like it, uh, but I felt like they were very fond of the sort of safe, legal, and rare type Clintonian language. Um, For, you know, my teenage years, that sounded about right to me. Um, and they were, they were not against the death penalty either. Again, for them, it was the law of the land. Um, they certainly didn't think that everyone should be executed for all crimes and they didn't think they should be cruelly executed or anything like that, or that a public spectacle, a spectacle should be made out of it. They didn't like that. My grandparents, uh, were from Hillsborough, Texas. They still had recollections of actual lynchings. So there was some sense that death shouldn't be a spectacle, that that's kind of a shameful way for a society to be. But at the same time, they weren't against the thing in principle, the death penalty itself. Uh, and so when I got into Catholicism, because I had never thought much about those issues, uh, I had to rethink them. And I wound up coming out on the consistent life ethics side. Okay, what about uh, in terms of rape or incest? Or in, ca- yeah, I mean, in, ca- in cases of rape or incest? Like how absolutist are you in terms of pro-life? I still think that abortion in those cases is not morally right. Um I have a hard time, and I think all pro-life people do, whether they're upfront about it or not, coming up with what exactly I would do legally about it. Um, you know, even right-wing pro-life people who devote their whole careers to it are usually pretty mum about what kind of jail sentence would you attach to that? For who? The woman? The doctor? Um, and I feel the same way. I feel like basically jail time or punitive response is not how I would go. Um, I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it makes the lives of women or children better. I don't think it makes family formation easier. I don't think it fixes anything. It's painful. Uh, it's painful either way. It's painful if you yeah. keep the pregnancy. It's painful if you don't. Uh, yeah. It's a very, it's very, it's a very vexing thing for me. You know, it's not cut and dry. Like I've always said this. You know, I'm. Uh, I tend to be left wing uh, on social issues, um, but I have like 
uh, you know, to some of my friends, I guess, I have like a sort of uh, weird uh, empathy or sympathy with the uh, pro-life position because especially in terms of late-term abortion, like, man, that's, that's intense, you know, that's an intense thing to do. And I used to say like, why, you know, like my thinking now, I think where I am with it right now is like, if you're going to not, if you're going to terminate a pregnancy, uh, it should be done as early as possible. And if, and I used to be like, why doesn't everybody just do it then? Why would you, why, why in the world would you terminate a pregnancy? You know, un unless there was like health of the mother or something like that, you know, or, or the health of the baby, like, you know, when you're six or eight months in or something yeah. you know, like that, like, why would you ever do that? And then somebody pointed out to me that a lot of women can't afford abortions. And so they're working to save money through the pregnancy and they're freaking out. And like, you know, a lot of times that's the case, which then made me think of it differently. So like, I think where I'm at right now is like, you know, women choice, but like it should be first term and it should, and if they don't have the money, it should be subsidized. Like here, I'll pay for it. Like just do it early before the child really forms, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough issue. It's hard to even think about. Right. And I think most polling shows that almost everyone has conflicted feelings about abortion, that people tend to be comfortable with term limits, with weak limits, and that um, people tend to be persuaded by information about pain the fetus might feel, but they also tend to be persuaded about information about the circumstances of the pregnancy rape or incest especially. Um, and I think that surveys of women who have abortion show us that most abortions are had by women who live under the poverty line, far disproportionate to how many people are under poverty in general, or women of childbearing age especially. And that most women report that there's some financial reasoning for them having an abortion. So when I think about how to reduce abortion, I usually go for um, uh, welfare. Um, for for a universal child allowance, for universal single-payer health care, for things that are going to lift the maximal number of women out of poverty. Um, and, and, you know, in a lot of the sort of social democracies that leftists tend to really favor, Scandinavia, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, they do have pretty hard, weak limits on abortion. And they also have a lot of cash transfers that go to mothers and they have low abortion rates lower See, than the United States. This is what I love about you, Elizabeth, because <laughs> this, this is a very shrewd political, um, calculation because it's like, yeah, I'm pro-life and the way to reduce abortion is to introduce Scandinavian social welfare state, you know, like that presents the hard right pro-life crowd, many of whom are voting for politicians who are also, uh, economically hard, right. And like hyper capitalists with like an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, and I think that they show a lot of signs of being actually kind of interested in that approach, or at least a lot of the conservatives that I've presented my position to find it at least worth thinking about, because cash subsidies for mothers and, and universal health care access, they reduce abortion in a way that is not the state acting upon you forcibly. And I think that really appeals to a lot of conservatives. They simply make the choice a more even one yeah. for a woman. Well, and does the um, do, yeah. do, do uh, these Scandinavian uh, countries like does Denmark have a lower abortion rate than the United States? They do, they do, and uh, they do have lower abortion rates, and they keep very good data on it. And actually, as Sweden over the past several years has sort of deregulated some of their uh, some of their stuff and has become a little bit more free market leaning, their abortion rate has gone up. <laughs> so um, it's definitely definitely the those good old 
social democratic policies that uh, that seem to militate against abortion without relying on punitive measures. Is that do you consider yourself a social a socialist? Yeah, yeah, a democratic socialist, definitely. Okay, so that's Bernie Sanders. Exactly. And I think like I mean I think uh, this question's been posed to Bernie in the in the debates that I've watched. I don't think he's he's given an okay answer. I think he's sort of like given policy prescriptions as opposed to trying to really like suss out a definition which might not play well on a on a debate stage or could easily be like mangled um you know, or twisted around in the media, but like, what, what is democratic socialism? Do you, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, do you have a, a clear, simple way of defining it to yourself? Yeah, I think so. Uh, democratic socialism is a, it's, you know, obviously a political schema, um, that emphasizes democracy. So a democratic means to achieve, um, at least a partially socialist economic system. So instead of, you know, violent revolution or overthrow, you're going to rely on democracy and some industries and social democracies though not all might be nationalized um and 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 you will still have in in a lot of cases private ownership of some capital um and you'll move towards decommodification of of as many things as possible so as many things as possible you want to remove from being commodities so healthcare is not a commodity for example housing is no longer a commodity education is no longer a commodity um, you just make those things available. And, and where do you draw the line? You know, like, like, and where does democratic socialism or where does Bernie Sanders draw the line, uh, for example, on what should be commodity or commodified and what shouldn't? And is that, is that really um, explicit or is it, you know, sort of a gray area? I think it's a gray area. I think you can um, you can go all the way to well, we should we should nationalize transportation and so on and so forth, or you can keep it limited to you know sort of big three: healthcare, education, housing, um, and you can you can increase some welfare. But yeah, what does it mean when you say you're not commodifying housing? Well, that everyone is guaranteed housing. Okay, so like yeah, if you if you don't have the money, like you're gonna there, we're gonna find you an apartment. Right, you're going to have state-funded housing of some and, kind. And yeah. that's what they do in Scandinavia. That's right. They have very, very strong programs for state for for state-funded housing. So people aren't living in the streets like they do in Los Angeles by like the thousands. Right, and I mean they have very good reasons. For, I mean, it's obviously the climate there is just not hospitable to human life. Um, so, so making sure that everyone has um, warm housing has has always been a priority there. Yeah. Well, what about the argument that like these countries are a lot more homogenous or at least they uh, I mean, I think they're getting less homogenous uh, as we speak, but they traditionally have been more homogenous and they're obviously a ton smaller in terms of uh, population. So it's easier to uh, enact these kinds of social programs. I think in the United States, the argument is that it's just too big. Uh, it's a it's a polyglot. It's you know, there's just too many competing interests. There's no way to do it. Like, uh, what do you say to that? Well, there are, you know, there are bigger and smaller countries that have different degrees of these kinds of policies. Certainly, almost every country in Western Europe has some type of uh, of, of policy along the lines of taxing and transferring um, for a particular group or purpose. Um, so, and these are countries with different levels of diversity. And again, the Nordics will say that they're pretty diverse. I mean, they've certainly been kind of at the forefront of taking in refugees for a long time. Right. Um, so they do, they're more diverse than I think we tend to imagine. Um, they are small, but of course with taxing and transferring, these things kind of scale up, um, at least in theory. And 
I mean, if if it doesn't work, what we have right now is also not working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I, that's my argument on healthcare. It's like, okay, you want to bitch about Obamacare, but it's like, what did it replace? It replaced chaos and uh, total dysfunction. So, I think we've made uh, a pretty significant improvement, and it can be improved upon. So, why don't we focus on improving it rather than going backward? It's just it's, it's such an asinine argument to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that you know, there are levels of policy changes that we could introduce in, you know, pretty subtle ways and single payer healthcare is one of them that would not turn the whole country upside down or, you know, break out an open rebellion and they also work whether or not everyone in your country is white. And I'm always suspicious of that argument because of what it seems to imply. But yeah. Uh so okay, so what's your read on the race right now? I mean things this is an interesting time to be talking with you because you're sort of like openly Bernie and have been from the start <laughs> and now we're seeing like the kind of tightening that is reminiscent of 2008 when Obama started to make his move, uh, you know, in Iowa. Like, do you think we're seeing a similar thing unfold here? Like, do you think that Bernie has a legitimate shot to win? I think it's more legitimate than anyone thought it would be at the very beginning. Um, I think that he has a very good shot at winning New Hampshire. I think he's got quite a shot at winning Iowa. The question is then, what about his ground game in smaller states? later on in the primary, South Carolina, for example. Um, Obama, you know, his campaign had a plan for if he lost the first few big primary states that are supposed to give you momentum. And he had a ground game laid out and, uh, you know, had a plan in place to handle those smaller primary states. So I hope the Sanders campaign has a plan like that in place. I hope they've studied the Obama campaign. Um, And even if it doesn't come to fruition for Sanders, I think he got further than a lot of people thought he would. Yeah, well, and he's also going to, I mean, he's affecting the platform. I mean, regardless of uh, whether you're a Hillary supporter or a Bernie supporter or neither, like I think objectively you would have to say that Bernie has moved the needle in his party in his direction. Like <laughs> you see, you can see Hillary like par- parroting his policy. Uh, you, you can see Hillary par- you know, parroting his policy almost like verbatim at this point in a lot of, uh, on a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see Sanders is uh, open the Overton window so much you can kind of see Denmark through it. Um, he's done a lot to bring policies to the United States that, um, you know, even back when Obama was running, were controversial. Like, I remember, like single payer. So I remember Nancy Pelosi saying, "People keep saying single payer, single payer. It's not going to be single payer." Um, and those were in the early days of debating over. The Affordable Care Act. But now I think a lot of people feel like, all right, well, if it was single pair, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, um, yeah, even conservatives. Even Donald Trump. <laughs> even Donald Trump himself, right? Who is a man of, I'd say, thematic interests rather yeah. than policy interests. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I definitely think that um, single payer uh, is, is catching on in terms of, of the public interest. Um, and that's a, that's a big step. And so, like, but the thing is, though, is that I think back in 2009, when Obama was first introducing, I guess that was when he was first introducing Obamacare. Do I have my chronology right? Yeah. Uh, They were starting to talk about it. I mean, it took forever. But uh, I was always of the belief that they got through what they could get through congressionally. Like, that's all that they had the votes for. Um, You know, maybe if if he would have taken, like, a bolder tack, he could have gotten more. But I, I feel like too many, like, you know, center center left democrats in tough states or in tough districts would have jumped they would have said i can't do it because their constituents would have been freaked out and it just wasn't time like do you think that if bernie sanders were to win that the votes would be there for for single payer like once he's the president 
And let's say, I mean, I think if he wins the presidency, then Congress is on the table because that would be such a huge upset. And um, he would obviously bring a whole different kind of voter to the polls. So who knows what would happen congressionally? But it seems likely that the Republicans would hang on to the House. Uh, probably the Democrats would win the Senate. So you'd have divided government and you would have the opposition in control of one um, House of Congress and they could probably block anything. Right. I mean, like it, I don't know if you would get I can't imagine you would get single payer. It's possible. I mean, you know, Sanders is supposedly very good at working Congress. He's been in Congress for a very long time. Um, so, you know, one thing that he might be able to do is modify the ACA to have uh, something like a public option. Um, he talks about Medicaid for all, but even just expanding the, the, the public option um, or creating a public option to go as part of the ACA would be, you know, kind of a step in the direction of single payer. A lot of people will will air public option as the first step to single payer in the United States. I'm kind of skeptical of that myself. I think there are a lot of problems that come along with public option. Um, for instance, if you had a public option, you might only see the poorer and sicker people um, signing up for it, which would kind of put a drain on its resources um, and then could could run into a lot of problems that would make people believe that single payer was not possible when in reality, single payer just kind of relies on um, everybody participating. So what is single payer? Like just in case people might not know, that's just um, government financed. Everybody is in the same pool. Like the all citizens are essentially in the same insurance pool and it's a government financed insurance program. Right. There's only one payer that you bill and only one payer that pays for health care costs. And it's the state. And that's it. And that's where yeah. and that's and that's the system that's at that's in place in uh, Scandinavia, uh, many countries in Western Europe. I mean, I think Switzerland has a system not too dissimilar from ours, but otherwise it's a lot of single payer. Right. England has the National Health Service. Canada yeah. is Canada single payer. Canada is single payer. Yeah. So, I mean, like this yeah. is this is in effect in a lot of these countries and they're getting better health care at a better uh, and more cost effectively. Right. They have lower health care costs per capita than we do by a long shot. And the argument is that uh, the argument against single payer is that it's a government takeover of health care that's going to lead to what just communist fascist takeover. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hear a lot of arguments about single payer being uh inefficient. You can't necessarily get in when you want. Um, you don't really have the kind of boutique choice between doctors that you might want. Um, you know, you might have to wait a little bit. Those are the kind of arguments you hear about, uh, against single payer. To which you say? I lived with the NHS for a year and I liked it a lot. I mean, and I have epilepsy. Okay. So it's not like I've never had a serious health problem. Right. Um, I, I like the NHS. Um, I was on the NHS when I was in the UK. I had the flu. They came and did a house call. Um, I went and saw them for sort of regular checkups. Um, will you wait? You will sometimes wait. Um, if you are having a heart attack or you need a, a sudden organ transplant, you will not wait. Um, but if you've got a stuffy nose or a sore throat, the likelihood is you're not going to, not going to going to run in and see the doctor you want to see immediately the instant you don't feel great. Although, you know, I never had significant weights. Yeah. Well, and sometimes, so, I mean, I, and I, and I have significant weights now in the States and we don't have single pair. All right. Exactly. It, it, so it can, it can take weeks to get into a, a doctor for an appointment. So, um, like, like, I, I don't know, I guess like, uh, implementation, like we would vote for it and then that would just basically create a Medicare system for everybody as Bernie Sanders says, and that would be that. It would, and then what would happen to the insurance companies? They would just go away. 
Yeah, I mean, they would be, you know, uh, well, I mean, they could still, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, they would be absorbed into this new structure, uh, you know, in terms of jobs, um, one hopes. But, but yeah, we would we would lose that system. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's a big, I mean, that that's a lot of people, a lot of people's jobs. That's a big chunk of the economy. Um, right. You but know. this would require a bureaucracy. Um, so people would have a, a place to do their work. Yeah. Um, for sure. Okay. And then what about uh, Hillary Clinton? What about Hillary Clinton? I don't know. Are you anti? You're, you're anti. I mean, like, are you, <laughs> are you anti with vehemence? Or are you just like, I prefer Bernie over Hillary, but I kind of like Hillary too. And if she's the nominee, I'll vote for her happily. Is that accurate or inaccurate? I prefer Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. I think that the, and this is purely a media bubble thing, right? But inside the sort of pundit sphere, um, the the debate over Hillary versus Bernie has become so acrimonious um, that I don't even like to talk about it. I just talk about my guy um, because I don't want to aggravate that stuff. I'm not, I guess I'm not, you know, I'm not confrontational by nature. Um, and so it's been a very uncomfortable election in that regard. What is it that people are saying? Like the pundits are saying that like Bernie's not electable. Is that what it is? Like I hear a lot of that, you know, or yeah. I've, I've thought that myself, but I'm increasingly, I mean, cause I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm sympathetic to Bernie on the issues, but like, I also don't want, um, to see Ted Cruz become the president of the United States. And like, I'm, you know, I want the, the Democrat to win in this election. That's my, that's my position on it. I think these, I think Donald Trump would be a nightmare. Uh, so I, you know, I want to win. And yeah, I think that maybe people have concerns that Bernie in a national election wouldn't fare as well as Hillary. Yeah, I, I think that has been the concern. Of course, the all of the information we've seen, the polling information we've seen has suggested that Bernie's very electable um, and that he wins in a lot of head-to-heads with, with Republican candidates like Ted Cruz. Um, so I wouldn't worry about him on electability grounds. There have been some statements that people who support Bernie must support Bernie for um, for sexism reasons, that they just don't want to see a woman president. Um, that's certainly not my reasoning, but that's one of the arguments that's been more bitter so far. And once again, this is inside the, the world of people who write about politics. I don't think everyday Americans are having those kind of arguments. Yeah. And then, uh, but you would vote for Hillary if she's the nominee. Well, I don't usually vote for Democrats. I mean, I, <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, Bernie's kind of a special case. Um, I, I, I guess. What I mean, do you, what do you, do you typically on... vote like for the, what is there like always a green party candidate or something or. Yeah. Well, I'm 25. So there, I haven't actually been eligible to vote for all that many elections. Um, so, you know, the, the only time I was elected, I was able to vote uh, was for Obama, I guess in his last run. Cause I, my birthday's in December. Right. Um, so I missed the first time Obama was elected. The second time I was eligible to vote, um, and I think I just figured I was in a red state, so I, my vote wouldn't matter. <laughs> right. I also I also get very nihilistic about my vote <laughs> around election time. Yeah, so. no, I can I can do that too in California. You're just because like for maybe the flip, you know, it's like I'm in California. Yeah. He's obviously going to win. I can vote for the Green Party guy and like vote my conscience or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. You have those like nice luxury votes. I mean, I guess it would depend on who the uh, who the Republican candidate was, what they were talking about. I'm very nervous about you know the defunding of certain government programs. That's what really worries me with, with Republicans this time around. But have you, Donald, can you, can you vote for Republicans? 
No, not not registered voter. Okay, no. So, but you, you like, but like that's not even a possibility for you, like as it stands right now, in terms of the political climate. Oh no, no. There's not not one of them that I would vote for. I mean, if like a mythical weirdo Republican came along who happened to match like all my weird boutique political interests, then I would put aside the nomenclature and vote for them. But that's never happened. Right. Um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I imagine Hillary Clinton will win. Um, I'm not great at predicting this kind of stuff, but she's doing very well. Um, the Republicans have had some struggles. I think no matter if it's Bernie or Hillary, if they end up going against Trump, I think that will be very alarming to a lot of people and will help get out the Democratic vote. And there are, in fact, more Democrats than Republicans nationwide. Um, so if we can just get young people out, people of color and, and, and Democrats who are registered but sometimes stay at home, you know, there's a there's a good chance of seeing another Democrat elected. And then what about uh, what about generational politics? Because you're a millennial, is that right? Are you a millennial? That's right. Okay, yeah, 1990. So All right. I don't. What's the, is that the beginning of it? Ninety. I think. Well, so generations are weird. I mean, they they there's no official definition for a millennial. I think we're anyone who came of age during the new millennium. Okay. Is what they say. So that that's me. All right. So uh, you're a millennial, and I feel like that means you know you. Uh, were a child when 9-11 happened. Yeah, I was in uh, elementary school. You go to college and the economy craters. That's right. You go into the Great Recession. Like those are two, that's a pretty dystopian um, set of circumstances for a person to come of age uh, under. And it's obviously colored the perspective politically. Uh, I mean, across the spectrum, it's colored people's uh, viewpoint in that um you know, in that age bracket or whatever. And I, I guess that's what we're seeing, you know, fueling uh, Bernie Sanders's campaign. I mean, I feel like it's moved, like the needle has been moved on the left, um, you know, in the direction of democratic socialism. I think a lot of that's driven by uh, millennials. I mean, is that something that you you feel among people your age? Yeah, well, Bernie is, he's dominating among young people. I mean, that's where his base really is. He does very well for himself among young people. Um, why and is so, that? Why is that? I mean, because like some of it, some of, <laughs> some of it's sort of like he's the funny grandpa, you know, and it can be kind of. I've heard people characterize it as condescending, you know. It's like he's Larry David. Oh, he's so cute. And like, but it's like, what, what, what really is it? You know, what's the deeper reason why he's connecting with young people? I mean, you can't do better than free college <laughs> if you want to hit the youngs, because so many of us are laboring under so much debt, um, just life crushing debt. So Bernie talking about you know, making a college education available to everyone is, is going to hit young people very close to home. And single-payer healthcare, same story. Because we're people who live through the Great Recession, All not all of us, but many of us have seen medical bankruptcies in our own families. Um, we have seen people in our own families, if not ourselves, have to make very hard choices about medical treatment. I mean, I've got a bill here for 4700 bucks for the delivery of my kid that's not been born yet. Right. It's not it's cheap. Of, it's not cheap to have a kid, as it turns it's out. It's not cheap, but you know, I feel like the government has a vested interest in me having this kid because this is a worker and a taxpayer. <laughs> um, so you know, the state could stand to defray some of those costs. So yeah, so like we had to pay. I want to say, what was it like sixteen thousand dollars? I don't even know what it was. Seven or eight, or I, it was multiple thousands of dollars. I've blocked it out because you know, I'm trying not to think. It's about traumatic. It. It's yeah, traumatic. you're just like fuck it. We're having the kid. I'm going to pay what, yeah. whatever I owe. I owe. You know, and we'll just yeah. make it up later. But it's like, 
Um, in a single payer system, just to be clear, like there would be none of that. Right. Exactly. And single payer systems, to be fair, they make having a child much cheaper. Um, not only do you not get charged, but they also just the way that they organize pregnancy and treat it medically is different than the way we do it in the United States in the European single payer systems that I know of. So you get a lot more care from nurses and midwives, a lot less invasive testing. If you're of, uh, if you're young and you have no family histories, they're not going to go through with all that expensive fee for service genetic testing. Um, they're going to treat problems as they arise rather than trying to search them out. Um, and they're going to do yeah, minimally invasive child delivery. Um, so that's how they keep the costs down there. And they have like this great paternity leave and maternity leave. I remember my wife and I were in Sweden and we were sitting at a dinner table on one of our first nights in Stockholm. And this guy, it's like, you know, he's probably 40 years old, sits down next to us by himself and proceeds to tell us that he's on like his month long vacation at his little lake home. I guess a lot of people in Sweden have these like cabins, you know, they're not lavish, you know, but it's just like a, a country getaway on a lake that they use in the summer. And he was there for a month or six weeks with his family. And he had just come back to Stockholm to like get the mail. And he was just there for a night. Wow. And he was just, just so happy and relaxed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not yeah. paying. I'm, I'm really not uh, exaggerating either. We were just sitting there listening to him and he was telling, I mean, like, it's like you get like a year of paternity leave, you know, when you're a, a new father, it's crazy. Right. You can get like 16 months as a mother. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's amazing. I know I had a Norwegian friend in divinity school at Cambridge who, who had a cabin that he split with like 12 of his friends and family. And I think that's pretty typical is uh, you'll split a cabin with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not a, it's not a bad way to live, but it's a different way to live. It is a different um, way to live. And like the thing, it's the thing. It's like, I think people say, oh, but you know, that's just impossible. We can't do that. And it's like, well, you know, people do. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways to live. We just have to decide if the way that we're living right now is making us happy. And if there's, if there's a better way, maybe we try that, you know, if, if people are having better results, I just think, I think it's frightening to people to think of like, you know, dramatically altering the social contract or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause what we have in the United States is, you know, a relatively small number of people who are living amazing lives, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like outrageously cool, exciting. Everything's always changing. The party never ends. They're Epicurean, they're hedonistic and they're on TV and they're on Instagram and you can sort of be a part of all the excitement. Um, and they're living very well, but then we also have, you know, a relatively large number of people who are living totally terrible lives. They're destitute, they're sick, they're hurting, they're working through pregnancy, they're losing their jobs, they're working multiple jobs. In a lot of cases, they can't be, uh, they can't focus on their education and, and there's no social mobility for them. So the question is, would you pick a system like that where you kind of take a gamble when you're born and some people are going to be born to sweet delight and some born to endless night, as William Blake wrote? Or are you going to take a system where maybe happiness is a little bit more evenly distributed? You'll still have rich people and they'll still have amazing lives. Well, but, but that's that's the yeah. thing. We used to have we used to have a, a top in t- uh, income tax bracket that was for the top earners was in the nineties, the ninety right, know, right. And exactly. this was the age of what the Rockefellers and the um, who's the steel magnet from Pittsburgh? What's his? I'm blanking on his name, but right, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. Yeah, and all like there were there were still titans of industry and super wealthy families when there was a ninety two percent income tax rate on top uh, on the top one percent. 
And that was also like the halcyon days of America's explosive growth and all this stuff. So it doesn't square like historically, like you can, I mean, I, these people were still living lavishly. They were, they had a 90 something percent income tax rate. What in the world are they complaining about at 38 or whatever, you know, like, right. Uh, right. It, it seems absurd to me. And it, I don't know. It's just like, why don't we, I think we need to pay attention to those facts. Yeah, I agree. And then there's a lot of data on Scandinavian economies and their growth. And, and it appears that having democratic socialist policies in place has not slowed down their growth. Um, they've done perfectly fine. So, so there are a lot of good reasons to think about those kind of policies. So what about um, I want to go to Hillary Clinton real quick, and then I'm going to ask you about the Republicans, because I think we have to we have to talk about both sides. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Hillary... Uh, you know, in my reading of you, I think one of the cardinal sins that she's committed, in your opinion, or like at least that she was a party to, was the uh, welfare reform of Bill Clinton's presidency. That's right. So that's really where she loses you, or where, yeah. the, where the Clintons lose you is on welfare reform. And I want you, if you could explain why, that would be great. Well, you know, American welfare was never great. Uh, welfare reform was uh, an attempt to get people off welfare back to work. Um, there was never any significant evidence, as far as I can tell, that there was widespread abuse of welfare. People uh, choosing to use welfare instead of working because there was never good enough welfare in the United States that it would make sense not to work and instead just to collect welfare. I have, I have, I have relatives in the South who would be like, they're having multiple babies just to get more food stamps and you know, like all this kind of stuff. Um, right. Not the and case. they don't know anything. They don't know anything about SNAP. Um, you know, food stamps never made anybody rich. Um, I'm so sorry poor people are having babies. Um, how terrible. I'm never going to grieve the birth of a baby. That's my religious conviction. So poor people having babies, totally fine by me. But again, there was never any evidence that poor people were having kids in order to collect welfare. And welfare collections in the United States never higher than the cost of a child anyway. Um, not to mention the time uh, off work, etc. A lot of welfare was already linked to work. Anyway, the welfare system was already not so great, and welfare reform worsened it. It it gutted AFDC, Aid for Families of Dependent Children, introduced TAMP, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and turned that over to the state, which then gutted it, just completely destroyed, and it's a zombie program at this point. Um, See, I don't think a lot of people uh, <laughs> listening would even know what these programs are. You know what I'm saying? Well, right, because they're they're totally dead in the water. I mean, they they don't do anything anymore. Um, and so that's what welfare reform did. It for a while looked like it wasn't going to cause any problems, um, but then you know the sort of dot com bubble burst and the economy changed, and now we have surging rates of people living on, you know, $2 a day poverty, living in what they call deep poverty, higher numbers than before welfare reform. And there's no way to reach them or help them. So well, what's the answer? Better welfare, right? <laughs> you, do, yeah. you do real welfare reform. And instead of reforming it to where it's bad, you reform it to where it's good. Um, I would add a um, universal um, child allowance uh, I would make sure that, you know, that way every kid comes in the world, comes attached with some income. I would, of course, you know, we talk about reforming the healthcare system and, and try to make more provisions for housing than we have in, in, in sector eight public housing. Um, so the Republicans obviously disagree. 
they want to decimate uh, welfare. They want to get rid of Medicare. They want to get rid of Social Security. I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but they're, they tend to frown upon things like Social Security and Medicare and say that there's no way that they could possibly remain solvent. And they, you know, they obviously hate Obamacare and have like voted to repeal it like a hundred times to no avail. So, um, what's up with them? Like, what do they, what do they think is going to happen when they pull the thread on all these social programs? Well, <clears throat> they say what's going to happen is the reduction in taxes will allow people to create more jobs, and that money will therefore trickle down to the poor people who were using welfare programs before through employment. Um, is there any evidence of this? No. Rich people are perfectly content to hang on to their money in a lot of circumstances. You couple this with the fact that most Republicans are against raising the minimum wage. So even if there were new jobs, no guarantee that they would be living wage jobs. Um, and, and they also, I mean, I just think it appeals to their constituencies, this idea of punishing certain groups of people. You know, the way that welfare language is coded, you're always thinking about single black mothers with children. Um, and if you're a certain type of person, there's nothing worse than that. Um, that's, you know, pathetic. It's, it's really, really reprehensible to me. But I think that's, you know, those are the basic reasons that, that you get militation against welfare. Yeah. Well, and it just, it seems to me like you have Donald Trump leading the national polls, which is, uh, it's gotta be a joke to the rest of the world. It's just, <laughs> It's just bananas. Like, and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 15 years older than you. So I feel like I've been watching, you know, since I was politically conscious, I've been watching the Republican Party sort of uh, drift into this state of insanity and sort of slow motion my whole life. Um, you know, I, I, not that I called it perfectly, but I sort of was always sensing like, God, this is headed in a weird direction. And now you're seeing things uh, play out that just seem ob objectively screwy. And I find myself thinking a lot, like, how does this end? Like, what in the world is going to happen? Like, is there any hope for it to, like, I guess historically, eventually it'll cycle back in the direction of sanity or not? Like, I, do you have a sense of where things are headed? Is it going to split? It's hard for me to tell. I mean, um, I think that we're headed in the direction of the party losing a lot of their credibility, the two-party system. You might see more parties crop up or be more viable than they have been in the past. Um, that would be my hope. It looks to me like the Republican Party is kind of splitting into a more, you know, capital L liberal type libertarian-esque party that's really concerned with finance, reducing taxes, reducing government intrusion in, into the, you know, private citizen's life, preventing surveillance, uh, protecting privacy. And then uh, the other half is kind of turning into, right, like an ethno-nationalist Euro-fascist style party. That's just kind of a party of white grievance politics, uh, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, um, kind of protectionist, um, and so on and so forth. And it looks like those are the kind of two halves. And then on the Democrat side, you have something similar going on where one half is basically a um, liberal centrist party that, you know, basically wants to tinker as little as possible with social programs and so on and so forth, but is very socially liberal. And then a more populist social democratic base that actually wants to majorly reform uh, several of our policies. So, so what do you think of Obama? He's more of the centrist Democrat. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have any major problems with Obama. You know, he hasn't exactly been a friend of the proletariat <laughs> um, during his presidency. He was certainly limited by the Congress that he had. Um, 
there have definitely been improvements. Yeah. So I, for one, will not be hating on Obama's legacy. Yeah, um, well, I, but I, that's the thing. Like, I, I just, I love Obama. Uh, you know, he's kind of exactly what I thought he would be, which is like a good reason to like a politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like no big surprises, didn't turn out to be like a, a, a huge asshole or something that I thought he wasn't. Um, got done what he said he was going to do, basically. There are some issues, like there, you know, like drones and, um, yes. you know, uh, the prosecution of whistleblowers. And, like, you can point yeah. to things that, like, if you isolate them and start to pick them apart, can make you go, oh, my God, the whole thing's corrupt. And, like, you know, this is why we can't have nice things and everybody sucks, you know. But I don't think you can, I don't think you can look at a, a president. I think you have to look more holistically. Like, I think you could do that to any president ever so they're they're either all awful or i don't know do you know what i'm saying like it's like it, yeah, get, it gets yeah. to be difficult I mean, to parse and i i don't want to be like you know looking at obama through rose-colored glasses and missing some you know hugely egregious moral failing that um you know everybody else can see but i also think that sometimes people can be a little bit ridiculous um you know and fixated on one area of um failing and use it to kind of paint the entire presidency with yeah you just you know whenever people say you know obama's been a horrible president i ask when the last good one was um and sometimes you'll hear reagan um and sometimes you'll hear clinton and you know when my when my left-leaning friends say clinton was the last good president i'm like well clinton had one hell of an economy yeah and you that, know <laughs> that's, and that's not the president you know the president right uh, I mean, like the president can push policies that can lead to, I guess, some some economic good times or the or the reverse. But it's too big for one. It's like I think it's a little bit cartoonish for people to believe that like one person is pulling the strings and making the economy go. But that's that's the way our politics tends to um, shake out. You know, people sort of blame the president when things go wrong and, you know, give him all the credit when things go right. But it's not the it's not exactly the, it's not my understanding of it anyway. So um, but, you know, I, I, I think that. I guess what I would say is like if Bernie were to somehow win, yeah. um, I will be interested to see how the millennial left, especially because I think there's so much idealism in youth. Uh, not that it doesn't exist in other age ranges, but you know, it <laughs> tends to concentrate. It tends to concentrate more. I think the, with younger people, which isn't a bad thing. Like I'm a huge idealist, which is like, I don't know. I think it's like a strength and a weakness. Um, but I tend to be really idealistic a, a lot of the time in terms of how I see things and hopefully there's a place for that. Uh, but I feel like when I viewed Obama in like the, yes, we can hope and change, uh, 2007, 2008, you know, glory days or whatever, I was never thinking that he was going to come in and be some kind of miracle worker who was going to be able to, uh, make peace with Republicans or enact his entire agenda perfectly or, you know, like right. I, I feel like there was a, a lot of uh, ridiculousness in terms of the disappointment on the left and, and a lot of people who just don't understand the realities of politics. And I hope I don't sound like a, uh, a jerk when I say that, you know, cause I don't know everything, but I do know what divided government is. And I, you know, right. I, I know what an intransigent opposition is and I know what, uh, you know, a Democrat in Arkansas is facing in terms of his district and his constituents or whatever. So, um, you know, there's political realities. And I think that you campaign on the ideals and then you have to get into government, you know, into governing and it gets a lot 
messier. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that if Bernie were to somehow win, I would be interested to see how the idealistic component of the millennial left in particular would respond when he gets in and can't suddenly get free college education for everybody, but he can get free community college. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like what, what will the, what will the response be? Will that take the wind out of people's sails? Will that cause some kind of backlash? Oh yeah. I mean, I wish I could say that, you know, if Bernie gets in there and he can't immediately give us all single payer free college, uh, beautiful public parks that, um, I wish that, you know, that people of my generation would be like, okay, well, yes, he is making gradual advances towards those policies. Um, but, I, you know, there will, of course, be a, a huge uh, backlash of wailing and moaning. and But, you, but you will not be part of it. No, I mean, you know, for one, I've lived in a country where they had policies like that. And I don't even have idealistic notions of what those systems are like. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you go to an NHS doctor's office, a kid might throw up in front of you, your doctor might be late. You might wait a long time. Posters will be peeling on the wall a little bit. A lot of the toys on the shelves are from the 70s. You know, it's not perfect. It's not futuristic. It's not utopian, but it works. Right. And um, that's kind of the attitude that I like to have about the policies that I would like to see in the world. They will not alleviate all human suffering instantly, but, you know, if they can reduce it a little bit, I'm happy with that. So I hope that my generation, supposing Bernie Goodson, can... Um, prioritize and then have reasonable expectations. But one of my reasonable expectations is that that will not happen (laughs) and that people will continue to be outraged by the lack of magical powers attached to the presidency. People want the president to be Santa Claus. Yeah, right. Some kind of, yeah, Jesus Santa figure. (laughs) Which would be be nice, which would be nice. But, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't square with reality. Right, exactly. I would vote for a Jesus Santa (laughs) ticket. But you'll settle for Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, oh yeah, that'd be a great ticket. You, and that's who he would pick for his VP. I asked, I posed this question on Twitter last night, uh, as I was, you know, and I was, I immediately caught myself. I was like, what am I thinking? I think he would obviously pick Warren if he were to win the nomination. Like that would be too tempting to pass up. Like that's the movement, right? I mean, there was nobody else who would better fit and who would get people more riled up. Yeah, I mean, picking Elizabeth Warren would certainly rile up his base. I can see the logic behind going with a more traditional Democrat uh, like, you know, for instance, Joe Biden that Obama picked in order to kind of try to pick up the people who actually had felt strongly about Hillary, you know, because centrist Democrats do exist. Right. They're out there. So I could see the reason in picking up somebody like that. um, But I don't know what the calculation would be. They would have to be looking at their numbers. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's just a math problem for them. It's it's not it's a head problem, not a heart problem. Right, exactly. but I could so I could sort of see Bernie doubling down, like just being like, "This is the movement," you know. Like, yeah, yeah, and I would respect him completely if he did that, and I think I would I'd be very excited about Elizabeth Warren, but um, but who knows? Yeah, well, there's something that, you know. She's very effective. Like you know, you can try to. The thing about her is that you know she's easily. Like, they're always trying to caricature her as caricature her as this radical, but in terms of her performance uh, on the stump and on television and everything, like. She's so good and folksy and down home and like Americana. Like there's nothing, uh, I mean, her ideas might be radical. Uh, you know, she might have uh, democratic socialist ideas, but her presentation, I don't know. It just doesn't strike me as something that would uh, make a lot of people freak out. No, yeah, she has a very soothing presence. Um, she's very grounded in her facts. She's very intelligent. Her self-presentation is very measured and even. Um, Elizabeth Warren is exciting because of her ideas, 
Um, but and and she's plenty, plenty charismatic. But she's certainly not a figure who's going to get people, you know, ecstatically riled up. But I think that's good because Bernie does have that kind of edge where he's maybe a little bit pugilistic, maybe a little bit. Um, uh, you know, he can get on people's nerves, his personality. Elizabeth Warren is the exact opposite yeah. of that. Well, and I feel like, I mean, in watching Bernie, like the one place where I consistently see him um, not like, I don't know, he expresses so much confidence on domestic issues and on the economy and that kind of stuff, inequality, like that's really his wheelhouse. And then when you get into foreign policy and uh, that sort of stuff, I find that he's less strong. And I do, yeah. I do worry a little bit about him in, an, in a general election going against a, a Republican who's going to be like, you know, uh, obviously beating him over the head with that and trying to come off seeming tougher and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he would need a very strong primer. Yeah, on be, on foreign policy and deb- a good team. Debate prep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He needs to go to debate camp on foreign policy. So, um, you live in? Do you live in D.C.? Yeah. yeah. And and you, I know we we uh, you can't talk about the sale of the new Republic, but you do write for the new Republic. I do. And you have been doing that for the past year. Yep. Um, what do you want to, uh, do? Do you know Like, do you want to just keep writing about these issues? Uh, do you want to publish books? Do you want to run for political office? What, what do you want to do? I want to keep writing. I definitely don't envision a career in politics. Um, I don't know. I'm on the spine for it. Um, but I like to write a lot. Um, I, would like to, you know, work on a book at some point when I feel like I have the requisite material and wisdom. Uh, I'd like to keep learning and doing different kinds of reporting and publishing and, and hopefully, uh, do really good stuff at some point. You know, um, I would like to see my journalism, you know, improve and have impact and reach people. So I guess that's the goal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, like if you were to write a book, do you know what you would write about? I have some ideas. I'd kind of like to do a monogram of essays on Texas. Um, it's climate and culture and economy. Um, but otherwise, I, I haven't had any serious thoughts. That sounds good, though. Texas is fascinating. It really is. Texas is a very interesting place. It kind of seems like its own country in a way. Yeah, it was it, at it, one point. Yeah, it, it might. Uh, it might. It, it, there's been talk of secession, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't that just in the news? <laughs> yeah, my my parents got a, sh- a T-shirt at a gun show that said um, "Secede." Y'all are lucky we don't invade. <laughs> and it's, it's perfect expression of kind of Texan bravado, but yeah. also tongue in cheek. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you what. I mean, I think you're well on your way. Uh, I, I feel like you're already really good, and I'm such a fan. Uh, I think you're going to, you know, like I've said, I think you're going to have a huge career and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
Um, she's very grounded in her facts. She's very intelligent. Her self-presentation is very measured and even. Um, Elizabeth Warren is exciting because of her ideas. Um, but and, and she's plenty, plenty charismatic. But she's certainly not a figure who's going to get people you know, ecstatically riled up. But I think that's good because Bernie does have that kind of edge where he's maybe a little bit pugilistic, maybe a little bit, um, uh, you know, he can get on people's nerves, his personality. Elizabeth Warren is the exact opposite yeah. of that. Well, and I feel like, I mean, in watching Bernie, like the one place where I consistently see him um, not like, I don't know, he expresses so much confidence on domestic issues and on the economy and that kind of stuff, inequality, like that's really his wheelhouse. And then, when you get into foreign policy and uh, that sort of stuff, I find that he's less strong, and I yeah. do I do worry a little bit about him in an, in a general election going against a, a Republican who's going to be like, you know, uh, obviously beating him over the head with that and trying to come off seeming tougher and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he would need a very strong primer. Yeah, on did. on foreign policy and De- a good team debate prep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He needs to go to debate camp on foreign policy. So, um, you live in? Do you live in D.C.? Yeah, yeah. and and you, I know we we uh, you can't talk about the sale of the New Republic, but you do write for the New Republic. I do, and you have been doing that for the past year. Yep. Um, what do you want to uh, do? Do you know? Like, do you want to just keep writing about these issues? Uh, do you want to publish books? Do you want to run for political office? What, what do you want to do? I want to keep writing. I definitely don't envision a career in politics. Um, I don't I'm not on the spine for it. Um, but I like to write a lot. Um, I would like to, you know, work on a book at some point when I feel like I have the requisite material and wisdom. Uh, I'd like to keep learning and doing different kinds of reporting and publishing and, and, hopefully uh do really good stuff at some point you know um i would like to see my journalism you know improve and have impact and reach people so i guess that's the goal (laughs) yeah yeah do you know what like if you were to write a book do you know what you would write about i have some ideas i'd kind of like to do a monogram of essays on texas um it's climate and culture and economy um but otherwise I, i haven't had any serious thoughts that sounds good, though. Texas is fascinating. It really is. Texas is a very interesting place. It kind of seems like its own country in a way. Yeah, it was it, at it, one point. Yeah, it, it might. Uh, it might. It, it, there's been talk of secession, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't that just in the news? <laughs> yeah, my my parents got a, a T-shirt at a gun show that said um, "Secede." Y'all are lucky we don't invade. <laughs> and it's, it's perfect expression of kind of Texan bravado, but yeah. also tongue in cheek. So. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, for somebody who's you're 25 years old. Yeah. Okay. I think you're well on your way. Uh, I, I feel like you're already really good, and I'm such a fan. Uh, I think you're gonna, you know, like I've said, I think you're gonna have a huge career, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Elizabeth Brunig. What a delight! Uh, you can find her work online at the New Republic. I think it's thenewrepublic.com. Google it. You can find it. Uh, Elizabeth has her own website. It is ElizabethStokerBrunig.com, and she's very active on Twitter. Her handle over there is at eBrunig. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music as uh, usual. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com for more information. Don't forget that this podcast has an app, uh, the Other People app. It's free. It's the best and most elegant way to keep up with the show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. 
Do you know how it works? I've said this so many times, but I always feel like there's new people listening for the first time. You need to know about the Other People app. It's free. You get it on your phone. Once you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you, free of charge. The most recent 50 for free. The latest episode always auto, you know, automatically uploads. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, almost 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for premium right there within the app. It's like 75 cents a month. You get access to everything uh, available at your fingertips wherever you go. The Other People app, go get it, sign up for premium, support the show. That would be great. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Sort of nice that no baby boomer rock icons died this week. At least I don't think they did. After uh, David Bowie and Glenn Fry, Lemmy, every, people just dropping. Bit of a reprieve from death. Uh, Mercury uh, just went out of retrograde. Like It was in retrograde, I think, when David Bowie and uh, Glenn Fry died. Does it upset you that I'm lumping David Bowie and Glenn Fry into the same category of importance? <laughs> I can just feel the hipsters cringing. I can feel it. Glenn Fry didn't command the respect of the fashion industry. Here's what I like about both of them, okay? They both did a ton of cocaine. Can we just agree on that? Glenn Fry and David Bowie both did disgusting amounts of cocaine that's how I'm going to unify America by driving that point home I don't know what's going to happen in the election I'm going to make a prediction I'll make a prediction at the back end of the show so it gets less air people have turned the show off by now usually there's a few of you sickos who are still listening here's what I think is going to happen I think Hillary's going to win Iowa in a squeaker or maybe not even in a squeaker, but she's going to win Iowa. It's going to be closer than she ever thought it would be, but she's going to win. And once that happens, the Democratic nomination process is essentially done. I think Ted Cruz is going to win Iowa. I hate to say it. But then I think Donald's going to win New Hampshire and South Carolina. It really depends. I mean, if Donald wins Iowa, it's over. In both cases, I feel like if the frontrunner wins Iowa, it's over on, in both cases. Donald will win. Hillary will win. If Bernie wins Iowa and New Hampshire, Hillary still will likely win the nomination based on her strength with, uh, you know, uh, minority voters, women. You look at the poll numbers in the uh, states that, you know, that, that are to come after Iowa and New Hampshire. It seems hard to see how she could lose, but you never know. If Bernie wins Iowa and New Hampshire, all bets are off. I guess Hillary versus Trump seems like the likely scenario right now. What do I know, though? I, I, I get everything wrong. I thought Joe Biden was going to run. I got that wrong, so don't listen to me. Please remember that Chekhov died of consumption and that Marcel Duchamp died of prostate cancer. That's it for now. I appreciate you guys listening. Go vote if you're in Iowa, if you're, you're in New Hampshire. Participate. What the hell? And uh, thanks to Elizabeth Brunig. And uh, thank you to America. Other people nation. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>